in the Old Testament. It's the third from the last book. I think the bulletin insert says you'll find that on page 791 if you're using a pew Bible. 791. I'm not entirely sure I'm going to get through the second message that Haggai has to preach, so I may have be tasked with a lot to try to finish the book next week. We'll see how it goes. <clears throat> the chronology is this, is we start this second message in chapter 2, which is an encouraging message. Uh, the characters are exactly the same. Uh, if I want to take you back to where John was in chapter 1, in response to the rebuke, in chapter 1 and verse 12, it reads like this. Chapter 1, verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God in the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I'm with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. On the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. And then in chapter 2, you have the exact same characters. It starts off this way. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, so about a month after they started working, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnants of the people, and say. So it's been about a month that the people have been working on the foundation that was laid, what, 16 or 18 years earlier. They're now beginning work again, but they haven't worked solid for a month. I'm going to presume they've taken Sabbath days off. I'm also going to presume, because of the time of year it is, that they haven't been working a, a solid week because they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booze, goes by different names, the Feast of Ingathering. It's the last official feast on the Jewish calendar. It comes in the fall of the year. Now, Haggai doesn't tell me that they celebrated the feast. I'm assuming they did. Uh, I think, uh, though I can't be positive. In celebrating the Feast of Booze or the Feast of Tabernacles, it's named for, and it celebrates and commemorates many different things, but it is the most joyous, celebratory, sacrificial feast out of all the feasts that they celebrated or commemorated. And it was a celebration by command because in Leviticus, as, as instructions are given regarding the Feast of Tabernacles, they're commanded to celebrate. They're praising and thanking God for a harvest, for the, the year that has been completed, uh, all that they've grown, all that they've reaped. And the tabernacles, or slash the booze, are a commemoration of their remembering their wilderness wanderings. When the Lord took them out of the land of Egypt and they dwelt in booze or in tabernacles as they traveled for 40 years before they ever made it to the promised land. 
And that wasn't a bad thing. That was actually a good thing. It marked the Lord's provision for them. God took care of us. It's not like, oh, do you remember how awful it was when we lived in these booths? Compared to a life as slaves in Egypt, this was the Lord cared for us. Even then, even then, he cared for us. It anticipated a harvest, uh, or it thanked God for a harvest, but it anticipated new rains during a a season of rain that would uh, kind of set the stage for the next year's crops. It was this particular feast, this Feast of Booze or Feast of Tabernacles that you read about in, I think it's John chapter 7. In John chapter 7, it starts off, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' Feast of Booze was at hand. So Jesus celebrated this specific feast in John chapter 7. It was uh, on the early side of his ministry, and it was in this particular feast that you read about in John chapter 7 on the last day of the feast, the great day of the feast, Jesus took water and he said, he poured it out and said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus took that feast, that great celebratory feast, way back uh, given in Moses' day, and he took And he used this image of water and he poured it out and he likened himself as the fulfillment of this great feast. This feast also, while it looked back on God providing for them when they they left Egypt and they wandered about in booze, this feast, because they continued to celebrate it, if they were uh, following the law, they continued to celebrate this feast every year. It was also, and I'd never read this before and I read it twice this week, So I'm thinking there's some merit to this idea. This feast also reminded them they were still living in booze. That the job wasn't done. Yes, they were brought into the promised land. But Hebrews tells me they never really entered the rest. They never reached all the fulfillment that God had promised Abraham just because... Under Joshua, they entered the promised land. There was much more. And so by celebrating the feast of tabernacles and booze, it looked back, but it also reminded them, you know what? We still live in tabernacles. Which kind of reminds me of what I'm trying to communicate today. You know what? We may be Christians saved by grace, but the job's not done yet. We still live in tabernacles. We still live in booze. And we still need some encouragement because we still falter. So that's where I'm going with this, and, and, the, and the people need a, a word of encouragement because it, I don't think they're celebrating in the sense of fulfillment or even in the sense that they might because verse 3 starts off with some questions. Those questions are, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Now, I think you have to kind of look, what's prompting those questions? It's been a month since they started working. They haven't worked solid for a month. But more or less, over the last month, they've started working again. And and the Lord's message is, who remembers the former house in all of its glory? How do you see the house you're working on now? What does it look like to you? Doesn't it seem as nothing to you? I mean, let's, the facts of the case are, you know, as, they, as they're working on this 
the second temple, the temple that is going to replace where Solomon's temple once stood, it really doesn't compare to the splendor of Solomon's temple. It's really kind of a, a poor imitation. It's a poor substitute. The work is hard. Enemies around them immediately begin uh, undermining their work on this temple that's, that's been dormant for 16 years. They immediately write a letter to the Persian emperor and say, uh, you know, the Jews are rebuilding this, uh, the temple in Jerusalem. Do they have the authority to do this? They, they told us they did. We don't believe it. or we're, They suggest we're not so sure. So they write a letter undermining their, their attempts to rebuild. It's a hard work. And progress comes slow. It's going to take them four and a half years to finish this temple. Now Solomon's temple took seven years. But, but it was in an era when things were going really well for Israel. Where Solomon was a a preeminent king among many of the kings of the earth. Uh, Solomon really didn't face any substantial enemies through most of his life. Uh, The kingdom of Israel was strong in Solomon's day, but the kingdom of Israel is very weak now. And it seems like whatever they do to rebuild this second temple, it's really just, uh, it's more glory to a, a Persian empire than it is to themselves. Like, what are they really accomplishing? How meaningful is it really? Well, I think there's words of application here because I think churches can identify with their, their feeling of what's the point. Are we really accomplishing anything? Are we, are we really even making any progress? Uh, can we duplicate what we felt back at the beginning? If I liken it to a church, I've been to lots of different churches, uh, probably more than a lot of you, but some of you may have been to more churches than I have. Uh, I grew up Missouri Synod Lutheran, then we transitioned in any number of Baptist churches. Uh, my spiritual mentor was at a Grace Bible Church in Springfield, Ohio. Uh, on vacation, I go to ch- uh, various churches back when the kids were young. They would attest to this. Sarah was usually the most game for this. Like, we'd try to go, if I could do a Saturday service, and then an early Sunday morning service, and then a later Sunday uh, morning service to go to different churches, I would do that. That's my idea of vacation. Most of the family wasn't into it quite the, the extent I was, but Sarah was usually, she would play along, and we had some pretty interesting experiences there too. But out of all my churches, and I used to, uh, before I came to this church, I was with Rural Home Missionary Association. Uh, I was between assignments or, or ministries. I was just filling in different churches in central Illinois or really a large part of Illinois, I'd made quite a few connections, so people would call me. I was like a substitute teacher, a substitute pastor, kind of like I had John speak last week. Uh, if pastors needed somebody, they might, and I had my name was in the hat, they may call me to fill in for them. So I visited all these different churches and spoke in different churches. And it always strikes me as interesting. I know the church is the people, but when you look at the building, the building is very interesting in lots of different places. Uh, I never quite understood churches that have these very ornate uh, seats up front for the pastor and whoever else is up there where they, you feel like a king. Like That just doesn't seem like what a church should do uh, in regard to how much the Bible speaks about humility and lowliness, and, and then you're going to put the pastor in this great kingly chair. So if that was a Christmas idea, just I nixed it. Uh, but after 26 years, I really didn't have my hopes up. Uh, 
You know, I've been in churches where, uh, you know, I remember back when Jeff Boland for a short time, Jeff Boland from our church, I mean, he's in Michigan now, but, uh, but Jeff Boland for a short time was an assistant over at Lakeview Baptist Church over on uh, William Street, and, and our church went over there on a Sunday night just to kind of support him in this new ministry, and I remember at that particular church, uh, it, was, it was a dated building, you know, uh, you could always tell a church that had very dark paneling, and a lot of paneling was probably pretty dated. And I remember up front, they had like this life-size church covenant. Like a lot of churches, Baptist churches had a church covenant. We had one when we first got here, and it was on the inside of the hymnal. But they had it like life-size plastered up on the, in the paneling. Uh, and it was a mixture of things the Bible said, as, long, as well as things that they believed this is what the Bible meant to say. Uh, this is the application. And I always thought, wow, uh, that'd be rough. And then something else that was rough that's happened at a lot of churches, they have an, an attendance board. Now, we have an attendance board, but I don't have a problem with this attendance board. The attendance board that I always thought was questionable, and I'm like, why would you want to do that? And I know any number of churches that were like this. I, I actually candidated at Oriana Baptist Church before I came here, and they decided they didn't want me. But I told them the same thing I told this church. I'm like, you know, I'm just not that Baptist. And they're like, yeah, we'll pass. Because <laughs> I think they were that Baptist. But, uh, but they had an attendance board. And, and one of the lines on their attendance board was record attendance. Record attendance. And their record attendance at Oriana Baptist, I'm not, I can't remember if it was in the 170s or if it was over 200. But it was, it was pretty impressive. Now, when I was there candidating, I wasn't impressive, and, and their normal attendance wasn't very impressive. And my experience has been the churches that have that record attendance on the attendance board, it's a far cry from the current attendance. It's a far cry. And no matter what that church tries and how hard they work, they're reminded, well, we're not the church we used to be. We're just not. We try hard. We do things, we come up with ideas, but we're running out of gas. It's just not the same. I think that's the, the, the situation the Haggai finds. You know, no matter what we do, I mean, let's be honest. If everybody's involved in this project, it's not going to be Solomon's temple. Our best days are behind us. And all this is really going to do is remind us that there were better days in the past. What do you say to a church like that? What do you say to a people that are building a temple when their better days look like they were already past? What do you say to individuals? I've talked about the struggle of the Christian life where maybe your best days were behind you. There was a time you were really excited. To, you know, you wanted, to, you wanted to read the Bible. You didn't have to, oh, I know I need to read the Bible. You didn't have to force yourself to do it. You didn't have to force yourself to pray. You didn't have to force yourself to, you know, share your faith. Talk about what Christ means to you. There was a day where that came easily. But what do you do so many years later? And it's a bit of a struggle. And you feel guilty about it. And you're not exactly sure how to solve the problem. What does God's word have to say in a situation like that, that's Haggai. And what's going to happen in this encouraging message is that the Lord is going to give specific instructions for the present situation. He's also going to give some specific encouragement for the present situation, and then he's going to give them also a future hope and some future promises. What does the church need to know? I mean, our church is 
the high attendance of this church ever, the highest average, certainly hasn't been when I was here. I've been here 26 years, and there's times, there's times I get discouraged that I think more isn't happening than what it is. I remember there was a, I mean, for 15 years here, our average was somewhere probably between 60 and 70. And, it, and, and at some point, you start asking, like, I don't know, like, what's the point? Like, maybe somebody else should be doing this, because it doesn't, my, my efforts don't seem to be getting blessed. Uh, I remember, you know, if I were to tell you dark stories, I can remember there was a time where I'm like, because I was kind of shocked, I always thought, you know, like, if you do church, if you treat God's word like I think it's meant to be treated, the windows of heaven are going to open. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to teach the Bible like that, and the windows of heaven are opening. And I'm like telling God, like, God, it would be nice if you helped. Like, I'm doing my part. So open the windows of heaven and let them come. And for 15 years, that's not, that wasn't my experience. And since then, it's ups and downs. There's an ebb and a flow. But, you know, after 26 years, I mean, I'm in, never mind how old I am, but I'm like, I'm not, I'm not a spring chicken. And at some point, you start looking back and you think, so what's the point? Like, what, have I really done anything? Have I accomplished anything? Is it meaningful what I'm doing? Has there been any progress? You ask those types of questions. That's why Haggai is written. So it starts off this way. Here's the solution. Verse 4. Yet now, be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst, fear not. Three commands, it's super simple. Number one, be strong. Number two, work. And number three, fear not. The be strong is given to each of the players. Zerubbabel's told to be strong, Joshua is told to be strong, and all you people are to be strong. This isn't, a, this isn't an exhortation to the, to the few. This is an exhortation to all of the Jewish community. You are all tasked with, you know what, be strong. It's the same, the same command that Moses gave Joshua. You know what, be strong. The Lord gave to Joshua, be strong. You're going into the promised land, be strong. It's what David told Solomon. David's getting ready to die. Solomon's going to be the new king. David tells Solomon, be strong. I think the message for our church, for any believer, for any church, is you know what? Be strong. Number two, work. Work. Do what you can. Get to work. Do something. I know you've been told that you are charged with faithfulness, not results. So you know what? Be faithful in the work. Be faithful in the work. You know what? As the Jewish community is rebuilding this temple, you know what their work will not accomplish? No matter how much work they put into this second temple, it will not be worthy of the Lord's name. It will not be worthy. It will not be worthy of the Lord's glory. It will not be worthy of who the Lord of hosts really is. It won't be worth it. No matter how much I pray, it will not be worth, 
It will not be worthy enough of who God really is. No matter how much I read and study the Bible, it will not be worthy of all that he's entrusted to us. No matter what you commit yourself to as a believer, whatever the work is, it will fall short. It will. It's not going to be good enough because God is, is infinite. He's perfect. And our efforts are, are flawed and they fall short. It's exactly what Solomon prayed when he built his temple. And he said, Lord, the, the very heavens can't contain you. How much less this simple temple? Which I think would have been one of the seven wonders of the world. But it still fell short. It's exactly the same thing that Isaiah records. I think I've got it in my notes. Isaiah 66, the last book of Isaiah, says this. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me and what is the place of my rest? Even if these Israelites, this remnant, all the people are strong and they work hard, it still falls short. Because you know what? A verse I pray many, many times is in Psalm 127, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build. If the Lord isn't in it, I don't care what you do. I've found out what I can do on my own. I can't build houses, physically or spiritually. Unless the Lord is in it, it falls flat. That's the message of Haggai. But still, they're told, you know what? Be strong and get to work. The Lord doesn't say, you know, your perceived difficulties, the adversaries, it's not real, it's only in your own mind. No, they're real adversaries. They're real difficulties. But that doesn't exempt you from getting to work. And it doesn't exempt you from being strong. And he thirdly tells them to fear not. What do we fear? What don't we fear? That would probably be the easier question. What don't we fear? We fear lots of things. We fear other people. And Jesus said, don't fear, though, don't fear the other people. Don't fear people that ultimately they, they cannot hurt you in any way. Fear him who can cast both body and soul into hell, which is God Almighty. Fear him. Let your conduct be shaped by the Lord of hosts rather than the people around you. I am so affected by the people around me. My conduct is so affected by the people around me. If it weren't, I probably would be a lot more expressive when I worship than what I am. But I was raised a very rigid Baptist and before that a very rigid Lutheran. And you didn't do things that were very expressive in those churches. Uh, and I'm affected by that. And you're affected by people around you. And God says, the Lord says, don't fear. Don't fear these other people. Walk in paths of obedience to me. Love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And don't worry about what other people can do. Then the Lord gives these wonderful affirmations why we should do these things. In verse 4, or in verse, uh, yeah, it's the end of verse 4, he says, Work, for I am with you declares the Lord. What would be a better promise than I am with you? I am with you. Not I am sending you. Not I have charged you. But work, I'm with you. I'm with you. There's a, we could, I think I could easily do, come up with a series called A Theology of the Lord's Presence. The Lord being with his people. One of the most common 
and lofty promises in Scripture or goals in Scripture is the Lord saying, Old and New Testament, I will be their God and they will be my people. And I'm going to dwell with my people. Our destiny, the redeemed of the Lord's destiny is right here on this earth. It's a new earth. It's a new place. It's kind of purged. It's been redeemed. It's been changed. But it's right here on this earth. If you think one of these days you're going to be up past the clouds, you're in for a disappointment. You're going to be right back here on this earth. And God is going to be with his people as he was with Adam and Eve in the garden at the beginning. It all goes back to the way it was. I will be with my people. You will call his name Emmanuel. God with us. He's going to be with us. He was with us 2,000 years ago. He dwelt with us. And he will dwell with us again according to Revelation. Jesus said before he ascended to the Father, he said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always. I'm with you always, even unto the end of the age. If he's with us always, even unto the end of the age, we haven't reached the end of the age, get to work and be strong. Get to work and be strong and stop fearing. He's with us. He's empowered his church and his people to accomplish the task that he's given us. Says, I'm with you, declares the Lord of hosts. This is uh, the sixth time out of a total of 14 times he will identify himself as the Lord of hosts. So in two chapters, that averages out to seven times per chapter, he, the Lord identifies himself as the Lord of hosts. Because you know what? Any promise I am with you is only as good as the ability behind it. Somebody can say, I'm with you, and they're no stronger than you are. But if the Lord of hosts, if the Lord of heaven's armies, is the way the New English translation translates that phrase... If the Lord of all heaven and earth says, I'm with you, then why would you fear? Why would you fear your circumstances or your neighbor? Why would you fear your adversities? You may struggle in them. You may shed tears, but why would you fear? And why would it keep you from working? The Lord of hosts is with you. He's with you. A really good example of that is found in 2 Kings. It's a little story about Elisha the prophet. And he's with his servant. And it's a terrific story. If you want to read it on your own, it's uh, 2 Kings chapter 6. And you know, you probably, if you know the story, it's, it's the king of Syria keeps planning attacks on Israel. But every time he plans an attack, it's uh, circumvented by the fact that the king of, of Israel knows what's coming. And he's like, is somebody, like somebody's betraying, what do they call that? It's a leak. Like somebody's leaking out this information, what I'm planning to do. And they're like, well, it's the prophet. Israel has a prophet, and he's telling you what you're going to do. It's like he's in your bedroom. And so the king of Assyria gets his chariots, and he gets his army, he gets, and he goes, and he goes to, to Israel, and they're like, where's the prophet? And the, the prophet's over there. And so he goes to the prophet's house, and he surrounds the prophet's house. And the servant of Elisha goes out, and he's like, Fearful. This is not good. You've got the king of Assyria with chariots and, and weaponry that we don't have, and they've surrounded us. We're in trouble. And Elisha prays that the Lord would open his eyes to see the armies of heaven. Because you know what? The Lord is with his people. 
And when the servant's eyes are open, there's no reason to fear. If God would only open our eyes. In a sense, he has. He's given us all of his word. It's this completed word what he's promised us and told us. We just have to believe it. We just have to act as if it's true and get to work, being busy, the kind of believers that we ought to be because he's with us. So the Lord of hosts is with us according to the covenant I made with you when I came out of Egypt. That's another terrific story. It's in Exodus chapter 33. The Lord promises Moses, I'm going to be with you. It's, it's one of the, ah, oh, such a good story. Because Moses tells the Lord, he's like, Lord, you've said, I mean, I know where this is headed. We're going into the promised land. And I know in some sense, you know, you're in this. But Lord, if you don't go with us, don't send us. And the Lord says, I'm going to go with you. I'm going to go with you. Moses doesn't want to go. He doesn't want to send the people there if the Lord doesn't go. I don't want to be in any promised land if the Lord isn't there. I don't want to be in any new heaven if the Lord isn't there. The goal isn't a new heaven and a new earth. The goal is the Lord would dwell with his people. That's exactly what he's promised. And that's exactly what he promised Moses in Exodus chapter 33. He says, my spirit remains in your midst. My spirit remains in your midst. Then there's the announcement of future promises, which... I hardly have time for, but let me read them. Verse 6. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine. The gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Well, those are some pretty highly debated verses, believe it or not. Uh, What's clear is that there's an element to this story that is future. I know it's future, and, and that's not open to debate because Hebrews quotes it. We read it in Hebrews chapter 12 where the Lord is going to shake the heavens and the earth. And only the things that cannot be shaken will remain. So there's an element of whatever was just prophesied is yet to come. I know that's true. But in another sense, there's a debate whether this is supposed to be a messianic promise or whether this has more immediate fulfillment. My opinion is it's both. I think the language is ambiguous enough it's intended to be both. Uh, It's a very nuanced and a very complex argument if you look at the different sides, much more than I have time to try to explain, much of which I don't understand. I'll leave that to John at another day since he can actually read and translate his own Hebrew. But let me me look at it like this. The way the English Standard Version reads when it says in verse 7, I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. What the Lord is promising is this. Look, I'm telling you to work on this new temple, and I'm going to embellish it by having the world bring in their treasures so that you accomplish the task. If it were up to you, it wouldn't be a very impressive temple. 
But by the time we see this same temple in Jesus' day, it is a very impressive temple. I have read that some sources that would say it was more impressive than Solomon's temple by that time, that many hundreds of years later. Because it's been, uh, it's been underwritten, it's been uh, resourced by not only the king of Persia, the emperor of Persia, but King Herod funded an a, a enhancement of the temple so that it was beautiful in Jesus' day. And so the, the, the Gentile nations of the earth are what made the temple in Jesus' day the beautiful thing that it was, and that's in fulfillment of, of uh, Haggai's prophecy. Remember I told you when they started building the temple, a letter went to the Persian king that said, should they be doing this? And the Persian emperor said, let's search the records. And they searched the records. You can read about this in Ezra chapter 5. They searched the records, and the king found, well, sure enough, it says not only can they build the temple, but we're supposed to fund it. And so he writes back to, the, to their adversaries and say, don't stop them. And in fact, I'm going to fund the embellishment. I'm going to fund what they need to build that temple. That's in fulfillment of Haggai's prophecy. It's exactly what Haggai said. But the second tradition, which has prevailed in many ways, is reflected by like the New King James and certainly the Old King James Bible. The New King James Bible says this in verse 7. I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations, and I will fill this temple with glory. So instead of talking about the treasure of the nations will come, it talks about they shall come to the desire of all nations, and that's in, in reference to the Messiah. Uh, we sing two songs at Christmas time that have reference to that. One is, O come, O come, Emmanuel. O come, O come, desire of nations come. And then there's a verse in Hark the Herald Angels Sing that also refer to the desire of nations. It's not in our hymnal because there are a couple verses that never made it, one of which refers to the desire of nations, that Jesus, the Lord's promised Messiah, is the desire of nations. And we look for him and we pray for him now to come back a second time as they looked and prayed that he would come the first time. The desire of nations. And the glory of the second temple is greater than the first, not because the Gentile nations of the earth have made it such a beautiful thing, though that's true. And on one level that's a fulfillment. But the reason why the second temple's glory is so much greater than the first temple's glory because the Messiah is there. He is the glory of the Father. He is full of grace and truth. There is no greater glory than the Son of God, and he walked on in those temple courtyards. And so the glory was greater because Messiah graced that second temple. I think both are true. I think one is a precursor. It's a foretaste of what would be ultimately fulfilled in Christ when Christ actually came. I'm going to open it up for comments and questions. Uh, there's a lot more that could be said, but that's about as far as I want to go to leave you some time. Thoughts, comments, questions? Carrie. No, no. The Joshua and Haggai? No, same name, different, completely different character. That would be a very old Joshua if it were the Yeah. No, different. Uh, Joshua is a hugely popular name. Technically, that's really Jesus' name. I mean, yeah. Jesus was actually Joshua. Uh, so, yeah, different Joshua. 
This Joshua is a high priest, so that means he was from the tribe of Levi. Uh, Joshua, I don't, know, I don't know about Moses and Joshua back then. He might, I guess he might have been from the priestly tribe as well, but Jesus wasn't. Sarah. I'm with you. Yeah, you're, you're still in a tent. No matter how, how many blessings you experience from God right now on this earth, you're still living a tent existence. The fulfillment is yet to come. Yeah. Lori. That was a physical with you as well as a spiritual with you. Well, right. Which is no small thing. There is, I mean, to address that is so many different levels we could address that. Like, you know, C.S. Lewis talks about, you know, if, if we have this longing within us that nothing in this earth can satisfy, doesn't that suggest we were created for something more? I think he's exactly right. You know, no matter what we pursue in life, it will fall flat sooner or later, sooner or later. The things that I, I gave my life to when I was younger and as a teenager and then in my 20s and these different interests that I have that are so consuming for so long, eventually they run out of gas. It will be the culmination of what is in progress now. What is in progress now, what is a foretaste, you know, Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. I mean, we have a foretaste now of what will one day be complete. But Dr. Greer, one of the things he would say, like if you think in the kingdom of heaven, you know, that we're going to be tourists taking pictures, you're like so wrong because we will be tasked with stewardship on the new earth. Like Adam was tasked with stewardship. Adam wasn't just like every day, I'm just enjoying the good life, you know, and then I... The Lord walks with, with us in the cool of the day and it's just like no cares, no worries. He had no cares and no worries, but he had task. You know, his task was to care for the garden. We will be tasked with caring for a new earth. So there will be task and the Lord will be with us in the fullest sense in which we only have a foretaste now. Yeah, Jonathan. And however the Lord wants to build his house, that's on him. That's on him. Let's, let's close by singing a cappella. We'll just sing a verse of uh, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. 218 in your hymnal. 218. Um, let's sing the first and the last. You know the first verse best. Let's everybody stand. We'll sing verse 1 a cappella. Then we'll skip down to verse 4 and know that it came from the prophet Haggai.